time ago We used to be friends But I haven't thought of you lately at all If ever again a greeting I sent to you Short and sweet to the soul is all I intend Greetings, Marshmallows, and welcome to episode four of Mars Investigated, a podcast talking about Neptune, California's favorite blonde, witty P.I. Before we get started, my name is Kevin Ford, and with me, as always, is the Vincent Van Lowe to my dancing gorilla on the boardwalk, Jerome Cuson. Jerome, how are we doing today? I honestly don't know if that is an insult or a compliment or a backhanded compliment, so I'm just going to say, hi, Kevin, how's it going? <laughs> well, I called you Vincent instead of Vinny, so there's at least some modicum of respect in there. I mean, you could call me Vincent Man, and that would be really bad, because that would mean I'm a psychopath, but... I would much prefer to be uh, compared to Vinny Van Lowe than Vince McMahon. Absolutely. As a, as a human being, I guess, yes? Yes. Because Vince Van Lowe has a little bit of decency. That's right. There's at least some modicum of moral compass that he that he has within him. But there's not a ton of it, but we'll get into that in a second. Before we get started on all things Veronica Mars we're discussing this week, I do want to mention that I have a new podcast, or a new old podcast, rather, that has launched on Enter the Real World called Flooping the Pig. It is a podcast myself and my two friends, Brad Garoon and Justin Houston, who are making their Enter the Real World debuts. We're covering Adventure Time on this podcast, and we did 60 episodes for an older website that no longer exists. And then for several reasons, we went off the air, but now we are bringing it back. And the folks of The Real World are nice enough to not only host the new episodes, but also post the archives. So by the time you listen to this, we're probably about eight to ten episodes into the archives of the first season of Adventure Time episodes, maybe even dipping into season two. So check those out before new episodes start early in 2020. Uh, And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at KFord13. But no spoiling Veronica Mars season four. That is an instant block and possibly even a mute. So be be kind. And Jerome, what do you have on this fine website other than this very podcast? I do Superhero Pantheon with Brian, and we are in the midst of discussing a number of different films. We're kind of bouncing around because, believe it or not, Kevin, we have almost reviewed every superhero movie, at least relevant superhero movie, and that has been theatrically released. So sometime in 2020, we will be transitioning into something else. But right now we are in the midst of the Judge Dreads, we reviewed both the 1995 version starring Sylvester Stallone and the far superior version from 2012 that stars Carl Urban. And then we will be getting into 2018 stuff, which is probably what you are going to be able to listen to as we speak, including Deadpool 2, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Venom, Psy, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, as well as Aquaman all before 2019 is over with. People, if they would like to yell at me on Twitter, can always go to at Jerome C1985. Um, you know, people don't yell at me as much since I stopped covering wrestling, and that's a good thing. That is a very good thing. You've made a wise choice, one that I have not yet made. Well, Kevin, someday, just like Veronica Mars, you're going to have to break away and, and move to New York and meet Ira Glass. But does anybody truly ever break away? I guess that's sort of what we're going to be discussing here today as more or less we are bridging the gap between Veronica Mars season three and season four with a lot of stuff to talk about today. But first, I will talk about a special feature on the season three DVD in which Rob Thomas essentially talks about and shows us some clips of what they filmed, which was more or less a, a repitch of Veronica Mars to the CW network. They were either 
already canceled or in danger of being canceled by the time that this pitch came around. Essentially what happened was is that in Rob Thomas's mind, the end goal for Veronica Mars was always to end up in the FBI when she was out of college. And the pie in the sky dream would be this would happen if Veronica Mars were to make it to a season seven or eight. Uh, but at this time, the head of CW was interested in having a police show involving a rookie officer. So in the hopes of being renewed, Rob and company put together a pitch where season four was serve as her start in the FBI. Now, season three, of course, ends with her getting an internship with the FBI. So there actually is internal logic to Veronica Mars transitioning into the show and not just being the Hail Mary of a renewal that they were looking for. So we see actually some footage that they shot as, as again, it's sort of like this repitch. It's like 12 minutes worth of footage. And there's a purposeful shift to cooler tones in the show. I, I You could tell from Veronica Mars that it's very kind of your your autumn-based colors, your, your browns, your reds, your yellows, your golds. This is very much blue, white, more cool, wintry tones here because they wanted to show that the network that this is a very seismic shift and one that they would allow them to both resell the show to their audience at home, but also to advertisers. And if you're watching this pitch, Veronica is the only character from the previous three seasons who appeared in this new version of Veronica Mars. And the pitch essentially showed her undercover as a student at a reform school for bad kids, catching the principal giving students early release from the school in exchange for sexual favors. Kind of the idea I got from this is this was going to be more or less what iZombie would become in that it's almost an excuse for the main actress to be a new character each episode by going undercover. Um, some, somewhat in the way of alias too. Uh, and I always would joke with my roommate when watching iZombie that it's pretty much putting the hot lead actress in fulfilling every male's fantasies one episode at a time. You had her being a schoolgirl here. They talked about one of her partners working in a strip club. And of course you have some romance as there's of course her colleague that another rookie she hooked up with while training in Quantico competition amongst other agents and uh, some classic rookie shaming amongst the FBI. Walton Goggins, a pretty big name by this point in 2019 as they're doing their podcast, would have been her boss in this show. I don't know that he was necessarily the acting tour de force that he was back in 2007 or 8 when this was being pitched, but that would have definitely been a big get in this day and age. So I know you didn't get a chance to watch this because you don't have the DVD, but just hearing that as what Veronica R. Season 4 could have been, what are your initial thoughts? Well, I actually looked it up, and Walton Goggins at this point was basically in between S.H.I.E.L.D., which was not, not Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but the, the actual good show, S.H.I.E.L.D., that starred Michael Chiklis, and he was between that and Justified. Justified, which is very well regarded as one of the best television shows of the decade that started in the year 2010, and in some ways I think shares some of the same DNA as Veronica Mars, I'm not sure if Walton Goggins would have gotten to play Justified. That would have been a real shame because he is really excellent on that show. But it is a it is an interesting look at what might have been because, funny enough, there was a show on ABC a few years after this that was called Quantico that would have basically dealt with things in a very similar way. It was, of course, not Veronica Mars slash Kristen Bell, but they definitely would have got covered, I think, a lot of the same territory. And it is understandable as to why the CW would want a show like this, as opposed to whatever Veronica Mars was in season three. Fundamentally, I don't think the third season worked. And if you look at a show like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, they transitioned from high school to college. They did college basically for one year in season four, and they quickly transitioned away from that. 
I know that some of them were still in college, but they did not really do a lot of focus on it. And I think that was for the best. There was just something about it that, that does not nearly work as well. I agree with you on this being a very closely related to iZombie. And also another show that Joss Whedon did called Dollhouse had a yes. very similar concept as well. With In that case, it was Eliza Dushku fulfilling every male fantasy on a week-to-week basis. But fundamentally, would the show have worked? I don't know. I think rebooting the show before rebooting was a thing would have at least given us some new territory to cross. But to try to do this and to ignore all of the previous history, I think would have been impossible because this show is so much about its history and the fact that everything in the past has mattered to Veronica. And I think just rebooting it and pretending like the first three seasons didn't happen ultimately in the long term would have would have hindered people's enjoyment of the show, I think. I completely agree with that. Even watching the 12 minutes that was there, it was an okay procedural FBI kind of show, but it didn't feel groundbreaking or anything of significance other than this happens to share the name of a show that was on CW for three seasons prior. There's a female and she's a rookie and that's kind of it. But aside from some of those on the surface things, it didn't have the same charm to it that the previous Veronica Mars seasons did. So ultimately I'm glad season four didn't happen the way it did at this time. You know, I, I say this easy when I don't have a, when I don't have any stakes in it, I'm not losing a job or a paying gig. But just as a fan watching it, this would have not been the satisfactory season four of Veronica Mars that I would have wanted. Well, and the other thing is that the CW was very much still trying to find itself. And at this point, I think they know the brand that they are. They know that they are kind of an IP factory. They are the, the, the DC outhouse, so to speak, as far as for the Berlanti universe and the Arrow shows. And funny enough, from what I understand, they have a show... They did a, a kind of a reboot of Nancy Drew, similar in the vein of a Riverdale, where it's kind of taking this previous IP, turning on its head, putting a little CW spin on it and kind of going with it. And from what I understand, this Nancy Drew reboot is kind of what Veronica Mars was 13 years ago. So perhaps at some point I will give it a watch. I'm not prone to watching a lot of CW shows, but it, it is interesting to me that it kind of all comes for full circle and I think another show that actually shares some of the same DNA as Veronica Mars is, uh, is Stumptown, which is on ABC. Of course, in that case, Colby Smolders is playing an adult. But for those of you who are looking to scratch your Veronica itch, it seems like there are actually a couple of shows that are kind of dealing with the same, that are in the same DNA. Just even talking about Nancy Drew, it's similar. It's, it's like we're in an age where there's these unique show ideas that that writers want to do, but to sell it and to try to attract a certain audience, they'll add in a different name to it, like an existing property to get interest that jumps to mind. And then something like Riverdale also jumps to mind, maybe not necessarily sharing the same DNA as those shows, but they call it Riverdale. But really once you, once you get into it, it isn't your typical Archie comic from back in the day that you're watching on your screen every single week. Uh, so I think that's kind of an interesting trend we're going through right now is, you know, reboots and, and, and getting old properties and nostalgia is not a new thing, but I do think it's interesting how they're doing it now. We're going to give you this name, but under the guise of something maybe a little different than what you expected. Well, and I think so many of these companies are going to be starting streaming services. They have already started streaming services, and we've kind of been in this transitional phase for so long, and 
this is a transitional phrase that is that is going to be ongoing. It may never end because I think when when this Veronica Mars movie started, I think we thought we were going into a different era than what we are actually going into because at the time there was really not a streaming service that was putting out original content at this point. And it seemed like the, the avenues for how this, how Veronica Mars could come back were still limited. But at this point, as we know, there are a million streaming services and the odds of something being rebooted are pretty significant. For sure. And, you know, I say this, that it's easy to say that Veronica Mars going away at this point is easy. We don't have any skin in the game, but I really think you can't have Veronica Mars without Kristen Bell and Rob Thomas. And it's not as if either of those people were hard pressed for work at the time. You know, after Veronica Mars, Kristen Bell was the titular character in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. She did a couple other movies like When in Rome. And on the TV side, she got to be in Heroes for two seasons. Uh, As you had mentioned, she was the narrator for Gossip Girl. Uh, And then she got one of the lead roles in House of Lies, which would go on to have five seasons as a lead character there. So she's doing plenty of work. And that's just main work. This isn't talking about just random appearances here and there. Rob Thomas would go on to reboot 90210 as one of the co-creators of that. He had one of my favorite shows, Party Down, for a couple seasons. He even relaunched Cupid for a season. One of his older shows came back for a year. And you have to imagine that iZombie was germinating in his brain during this time as well. So there's all this going on, and then, all of a sudden, in March of 2013, a Kickstarter comes out. Now, were you aware of the Veronica Mars Kickstarter when it launched on March 13th, 2013, and did you contribute? I had a vague idea of what Kickstarter was, and for me, it was still this kind of new space where things could get funded, and I think we have since seen kickstarter evolve into something almost completely different because at the time i do remember the veronica mars kickstarter i remember that they had been kicking around a number of ideas to possibly reboot it either in book form comic form coming back as a tv show coming back as a movie there were all these different ideas and this seemed to be the one that stuck because i think there's always this idea of kind of the movie is the pinnacle the tv show's great but the movie is the pinnacle of, of kind of achievement. And I think you even see that with a show like Community, where they were joking, six seasons and a movie. We've gotten six seasons, we haven't gotten the movie yet. We'll see if that happens at some point. But in this case, yes, I did contribute to the Kickstarter. And I think that what this did is I think it fundamentally reshaped fandom in some ways good, in some ways bad. Because at this point, people are making literal investments into the things that they are fans of. And I think we can get into a conversation about whether that is a good thing or bad thing at some point. But ultimately, this proved that there was an audience. Maybe it was not a big audience. But when 91,000 people are willing to put up the money for this Kickstarter project, I think that just shows that there is a segment of the population that really wanted to see this. And that's just the people who pit, who contributed to the Kickstarter and also would eventually go on to watch the movie. I mean, obviously that did not have a lot of success, but it still made a decent amount of money at the box office for what it was. And just being able to get this project off the ground, it's, it's kind of a miracle. It feels like it was a miracle at the time, but ultimately what I think ends up happening is you get 
kind of all these reboots and it doesn't feel as special as it did back in 2013. I would agree with that. This is really like lightning in a bottle. So some just some general background on the Kickstarter. It launched on May 13th, 2013 at 10.30 a.m. Pacific time and $2 million was the goal. And I think the movie was in some ways the best served way for Veronica Mars fans because I think a lot of people wanted Veronica Mars to come back, but more or less they wanted to tie up the loose ends that were left hanging in season three. So if all they got was a movie to give them the answers to some of those questions, that would have been a satisfactory end to a lot of these fans. So this is, of course, like a little under six years since season three had ended. So I guess there probably was at least a question there, like what what level of fandom is still out there that is hungering for Veronica Mars to come back? And they put out this very funny video on the Kickstarter, which is still archived. You can go back on the Kickstarter and watch this video. That included Kristen Bell, <clears throat> Brian Hansen, Jason Doring, Enrico Colantoni, uh, and Rob Thomas. So at least let you know that these people were on board for the project. And there's a, a really fantastic documentary on the Blu-ray or DVD that is specifically about the Kickstarter showing Rob Thomas literally clicking launch on his computer, going through that process, his emotional process of watching it all go down. Same with Kristen Bell. It's really worth your time if you happen to have the DVD or the Blu-ray. Uh, and if, there was a lot of, you know, who knows if it'll make this goal. We'll see. And it made its goal in under 12 hours. And it blew everybody away, it seems like, genuinely. Like, I don't think anybody expected that this movie rebooting a show, more or less, from almost seven years ago, was going to get the audience coming to it and to raise $2 million in under 12 hours is a major accomplishment. And the Kickstarter still was getting money as it was going along. It didn't just end at, at $2 million. It's not really how the, the Kickstarter thing works. And on the last day of the Kickstarter, to count down the end, Rob invited some fans to meet him at a local bar. He only expected about, you know, three dozen or so people to show up and ended up hosting a crowd of 700, which included Jason Doring himself coming by to help count them down. And in the end, you had 91,585 backers pledging a total of $5,702,153, making it the most backed Kickstarter project in the website's history in terms of number of backers it had and the highest funded film. And so not only was this a big accomplishment for Veronica Mars, but it became this huge Kickstarter achievement point that and it got national news coverage because of it and this it felt like a really big deal at the time when this movie got funded and it created so uh, some new fervor for the show itself i think it did and i think it it kind of brought some fervor to kickstarter as well i think some of that has gone away as i think what ended up happening is some some high profile projects did not either got funded and did not happen i know there was a prominent wrestling project that specifically, I don't know if that had anything to do with kind of the general fervor around Kickstarter going down, but it feels like a lot of what Kickstarter is, is that you are still able to support independent artists, but it seems to me like it's less about movies and things like that. And it's more about like board games and stuff like that. Cause if you talk to people who board game, that's where a lot of the support goes for independent gamers. So I think that that is what a lot of Kickstarter is. And I think funding in general, unfortunately, the reality, if you are an American listener, is because of places like GoFundMe, this is how people fund their medical bills and funerals and things like that. So I think, unfortunately, that has that's what places like Kickstarter and GoFundMe have kind of become more geared, geared towards as opposed to major movies like this. 
Yeah, and I, I, I know exactly. You're talking about the Wrestling Retribution Project, which, for people who don't know, was like this uh, Jeff Katz, who had written some movies and done some television shows, launches Kickstarter to do like a 12-episode, one-series wrestling project that got well over its funding. There were photo reveals and stuff coming out of it. They taped everything, and then now here we are, seven or eight years after the filming, nobody got any of the rewards they put in. Jeff Katz has basically gone radio silent on it. And the problem is, is the way that Kickstarter works is your money doesn't go anywhere if the project doesn't get funded. But since it did get funded, he got all that money. And there's really been no repercussions from Kickstarter or anybody for them to get their money back for a failed project. So I know this time for at least wrestling fans, it soured a lot of them on funding similar projects, but not just that, but other projects in general. Uh, this I did not fund the project, and that was not the reason I didn't. And it was at the time that I lived with a roommate who did. So I figured, well, we're going to have one copy of the movie in the house. Why make it two? And at this point, like it was already funded. So it wasn't like me not funding it was going to hurt it or make it not be made. So uh, but I, I did eventually buy my own copy of it. That's how I watched it. And I was able to watch this documentary. And if you did buy this digitally and you end up buying a copy of it physically one day, it's like six bucks on Amazon or something at this point. That documentary is really, really good. Definitely the best uh, special feature on the disc itself. We get this movie coming out in early 2014, and we're catching up with kind of where all these characters are. So at this point, we learn that Veronica, after her one year at Hearst College, did transfer to Stanford, her, her dream place, finished out her degree, then moved to Columbia Law, where she graduated the top of his class. Uh, at this point, she's living in New York City with Piz, who's a radio DJ in the city. She's job shopping at law firms, and she's specifically interviewing at this place called Truman Man Law when the movie begins. They do bring up the sex tape of her and Piz there, and she just makes a note that, you know, that was made and distributed without my consent, and that's something that she has left in her past. So it's something that they mention, but it's obviously something that Rob or whoever was writing didn't want it to become like a crux of it. So they mention it early, and they move on, and I think that was a really good way to handle it. I agree. The way that it was written, it's almost like Rob Thomas regretted even doing that entire storyline because of the way that it was literally just mentioned at the beginning of the movie, and... I know that there is there is another mention of it elsewhere in the film, but it very much feels like this is something that probably should never have happened. And you uh, you get that sense of regret as we start the movie. And I, I don't I, you're probably going to mention the guest stars later, but it, it feels really important that Jamie Lee Curtis is at the beginning of this movie, even though it's kind of a small role. But it just feels like that elevates this beyond. Oh, this is just some goofy TV show. And I know that they've had Steve Gutenberg and Harry Hamlin and people like that on the show, but there's just something about Jamie Lee Curtis that it feels like it makes the project feel bigger because of her presence. I agree with that. I think showing her right off the bat lets you know, like, this is a legitimate real for deal movie. Uh, and also at the beginning of it, they have this, I think, fantastic video recapping what Veronica Mars is from the first three seasons, where everybody stands, where we, how we got to this point. In more or less two, two and a half minutes. So if you're just watching Veronica Mars somehow blind without seeing any of the show, you're good to go. Just popping in this movie and watching it, which I think is a, a big strength of the movie in and of itself. I'm not sure if I totally agree with that. I think you can watch the movie and still enjoy it. But there's a lot of things. I'm really glad that I rewatched the first three seasons before watching the movie this time because it really it really does inform my viewing because there's a lot of characters that come back and even from season three, which is again, not the season that I like the most, but I think what this returns to is this very much feels like it returns to 
the tone of the first two seasons, whereas the emphasis is put back on the class issues of Neptune and some of the elements. It, it, to me, it feels more like the focus is back on Neptune, which is probably where it should have been the whole time, as opposed to season three, where I think a lot of the focus was very internalized at Hearst. Right. And I and it is it does speak to the movie that, again, this is a Kickstarter funded thing. So I think the one criticism you can lobby is maybe it goes a little too heavy into the fan service. But again, it is a fan funded movie. It is literally a whole project based on on serving those fans. So there is that. But you do talk about them going back to Neptune. What lures Veronica back home is that she hears news that Carrie Bishop, who was a high school classmate of hers, she was at this time under the alias of Bonnie DeVille and was a pop singer. She ends up being found dead in her bathtub, murdered. And she had recently broken up with Logan Eccles, who is now the number one suspect for her murder. And a call from Logan, who Veronica had not spoken to in years, lures her back to Neptune to help him clear his name. She, she, at this point, she's really only there to help him find a lawyer. But Keith and others know that eh, that's probably not going to fly. Uh, and at this point, Logan is, is he in the Navy? Is that the, the, the distinction of the, the armed forces in at this time? I believe that is what he is in, even though he is involved in, in flight, as some of the books talk about, but he is technically in the Navy. And I think that we clearly see Logan transitioning into becoming a more respectable adult. And if you want to talk about fan service, so we can get into that discussion this month, we are definitely going to get into that for next sure. month <laughs> for season four. Logan is the ultimate example of that, because whereas he is a very immature brat in the first three seasons here he is a fully realized adult and if you want to talk about the the manic pixie dream girl for girls this is kind of the 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 male equivalent of that in some respects they're kind of serving both audiences because the movie starts with her with piz and now here she is home with logan palling around again for sure and i think part of the transition back into neptune again i think that's a really good idea it's a really good pretext it's very common to do it to do in these sorts of reunion projects but i think you see how neptune in many ways has got more grimier i think that's the one positive about doing this as a movie instead of a tv show is that i think you could go a little bit darker as far as the lighting goes i think there's some color saturation that's going on here and i think you can really see just how bad things have gotten in neptune yeah definitely and veronica's home with her dad you get to see her reunite uh, with Wallace and Mac, which is great. And wouldn't you know it, Jerome, she just so happens to be back in Neptune when the high school reunion of her class is coming around. And although she has no interest, she is dragged to it. They even fly in piss for it. And Logan even shows up, even though his name is all over the news as a murderer. So it may not have been the wisest choice for him. But it's at the reunion that uh, Veronica sees this photo. They have like a, you know, a slideshow and a memoriam thing that connects Carrie Bishop to her best friend, Susan Knight who had also been dead, and she had disappeared after a boat party nine years earlier. And she decides that there's some connection because there's something to do with a new tattoo she got in the name of the boat. Veronica interviews the people who are on the boat with Susan and Carrie, which are Dick Casablancas, uh, who is back in his usual wonderful self. The, the, the first introduction we get of Dick, who is living with Logan, is opening the door to greet Veronica with a belch. And I thought that was the perfect way to introduce Dick Casablancas to this audience. Also on the boat were Gia Goodman, so Kristen Ritter is back, and her fiancé, Luke Haldeman, who was another classmate. 
And then a student we had not seen previously, Stu Cobbler, a.k.a. Cobb, played by Martin Starr. One other criticism of this is that if you're going to have a brand new character introduced like this, someone who you just didn't happen to see it through seasons one and three, you know something's up with this guy. Right. And of course, the fact that it is Martin Starr probably means that there's something going on as well. Although Martin Starr is much darker in this movie as opposed to so many of the other roles that he's played. I'm particularly thinking at this point, people probably know Martin Starr more from the Spider-Man movies than they actually do from Freaks and Geeks. But I think that is where he made his name was on that show. And he has since gone on to kind of be a character actor on a number of different projects. And I think it's been really great that he's been able to kind of survive in the Hollywood atmosphere and even gets to play a role in this movie. I also want to say, I think Kristen Ritter is so much better in this movie than she was in the second season of Veronica Mars. Maybe it's kind of the seasoning Maybe it's kind of going through other TV shows. Maybe it's going through Breaking Bad at this point. But she just comes across so much better. I think her performance is so much more spot on and precise. And you can definitely see this Kristen Ritter is so much more prepared to play Jessica Jones than the one that I saw in season two. So I just wanted to highlight a couple of those things. And Carrie Bishop is someone that we've talked about before. But unfortunately, the actress who played Carrie Bishop was not able to return. But it kind of works out for the story they're telling. Uh, to an extent, it does. I think it would have been nice if they had gotten late Meester because, of course, by this point, she was a big star from Gossip Girl, Krista Bell, the narrator of Gossip Girl. So it would have been a, would have been a nice symbol to have her back. But I, I don't think it makes it... It's not too big of a deal, but I think for people who are trying to follow this after watching the show, I think it could get a little bit confusing because it is a different actor portraying the role. Yes. Yeah, that always is definitely confusing. And yeah, uh, you had Ryan Hansen and Martin Starr were also both in Party Down, so it was somebody who carried over from Veronica Mars into that project, and somebody knew that would become part of this Veronica Mars movie <clears throat> from his first project with Rob Thomas. And yeah, this is definitely different from not only just the Spider-Man movies and Freaks and Geeks, but even like his roles in Silicon Valley and Party Down as well. So it's nice to see Martin, Martin Starr doing some different acting chops you don't usually get to see. For sure. I really, I really appreciated him. And so this really sucks Veronica into this process. She's not just sticking around to help Logan find a lawyer and then bail, although she this same night gets a job offer from Truman Man Law. Well, maybe not the same night, but a couple nights earlier. So she's ready to go back to New York with this new job at this place she interviewed. And she's also getting ready to meet Piz's parents for the very first time. But she gets so deep in this process that she keeps delaying her time getting home to Neptune, missing this meeting with Piz that Piz decides, you know what, you're getting drawn back in there. And I wish whatever was drawing you back in there would get you to get on the plane and come home to see me. So he terminates their relationship. And Veronica ignores far too many Truman Law phone calls that they rescind her job offer which unfortunately is found out by Keith as they leave it on her home answering machine. And he is not pleased because he sees her getting sucked back into this old life too. When he has this, this great vision of her not getting stuck in the PI world, that she's going to make more money and be able to be somewhat legit in the world of law and not have to slum it back in Neptune. But something about Logan, something about Neptune is pulling her back in and we see it causing problems both in her personal and professional life. So there are, are a couple of issues with this, with this movie that I think kind of get yada yada. I think the first is how would they know the phone number? I, I, that's not something that's really explained. Why would, why would she give that, that phone number to 
this law office. And the other issue is what high school reunion are they going to? Because they, they graduated in 2005 or six. And in this movie, it is 2013. Correct. Yeah. The timeline is a little wonky, but I see what you're saying. It's not like a 10 year reunion or something else like that. Yeah. They just kind of, they quickly forget about it and move on because I think that's what you kind of have to do. You either accept this as part of the package or, or you don't. And I think when you're doing a movie like this, I think you almost have to have that high school reunion scene because you're, you're looking for the cameos. You're looking for actors to return. I mean, people want to see Veronica Mars and Madison Sinclair yell at each other. That's just what they want to see. They want to see Wallace and Mac interact with Veronica again. I mean, that's, that's kind of what you're selling with a movie like this. Oh, how satisfying was it when Veronica punched Madison in the face? I mean, I think that's something that everybody has wanted to do. And that is probably one of the most fan servicey moments in the movie. And her dropping an F-bomb was, was another big deal in this one as well. Because if you think about it, it's, it's really amazing to me that, you know, she was on this network show, Veronica Mars, and they actually used the word fracking, which is from Battlestar Galactica. They also have her use a fake F-word on The Good Place. And hear, hearing her actually drop an F-bomb was, for some reason, surprising. <laughs> but hey, I guess if you can do a movie and get away with it, it's something that they're probably kind of excited to do. One well, of it's one of those things where you get one F-bomb for a PG-13 movie, and I think that there have been a number of instances. There, there's a YouTuber who did an entire video about the essence of the PG-13 F-bomb, and perhaps the greatest, this is the second straight podcast that I'm going to reference X-Men First Class, the best F-bomb from a PG-13 movie ever is perhaps when Magneto and Charles Xavier go into the bar, and... Wolverine tells them to go fuck themselves and it might be the best Wolverine moment in any X-Men movie and it's really satisfying so there is an essence to the to the F-bomb in the PG-13 movie yeah there's an art to it you can't just throw it in there willy-nilly you can't just have Cyclops randomly say it in Dark Phoenix and then it goes nowhere oh they never do that Jerome don't be silly they they absolutely did that and that movie's terrible (laughs) well that's another podcast and another total different show uh, so what what happens is Veronica realizes that the details behind Susan's death were sworn to secrecy amongst those on the boat and that clues from Carrie's new album led whomever on this boat to believe that she was ready to confess. So she was killed to keep quiet. Now, fortunately for Veronica, they're able to get some footage that led them to some suspects because old Vinnie Van Lowe had left tablets at the MTV Movie Awards with spy software on them. And there was footage implicating Gia as the person who lured Logan out of uh, Logan out to Carrie's new house to check on her to make him the prime suspect for the murder. And we actually have a new Sheriff Lamb here, as we know that uh, Don Lamb was killed in the show. But now his brother, who is called by many to be worse than him, Sheriff Dan Lamb, his older brother, is now the sheriff of the town, played by Jerry Connolly. And he is he he they bring this evidence to Veronica and Logan to him. And he says, I don't care what evidence you have. The public believes that Logan is the culprit. And that's how I'm going to portray him regardless. And <laughs> there's this hat that says free hugs that Logan is wearing that unbeknownst to new sheriff Dan Lamb. They are recording him saying this and that will become important later in the movie. But a new sheriff Lamb somehow worse than the old one. Uh, but it was this is another to me a little bit like Jamie Lee Curtis seeing Jerry Connolly in this movie adds a little bit of prestige to it, I suppose. Jerry O'Connell is really good in this movie. I don't know if he had watched the the previous performer who had played Don Lamb, 
But, I mean, he basically nails the character in every conceivable way. And I think with with someone like him is, he's this very handsome actor. And I think, just like Harry Hamlin, it feels like he's better served in kind of these character roles where he's kind of in a supporting role and not necessarily the lead of something. And it's unfortunate that we are never going to see him play this character again because I think he really just nails the feel of the Lamb brothers in a way that I was, was, was a huge and pleasant surprise. And even though he's in this movie for maybe five or 10 minutes, I think he's really, really excellent. I agree. He, he does a very good job in this movie. What ends up turning out is that Susan overdosed on the boat and Cobb, uh, Martin Starr's character had incriminating photo of everybody else dumping her into the ocean and was using that photo to blackmail them for various things like, bankrolling him being his friend and for Gia specifically was blackmailing her into sex to the point where he had an apartment across the way from her so he could see her at all times she wasn't even allowed to have curtains Veronica gets her to confess of this she gets killed by him Uh, Veronica gets the cops to come and arrest him and then the video at the end of the movie is basically showing Cobb uh, with this confession and a little bit of the mood changes for the sheriff you know, there's some community cow cries to, for him to be Lambassa as the sheriff. That's really the main crux of the story of the movie. What did you think of this, this story overall? Well, I think that one of the one of the issues that comes up for me is how are you telling your stories? Because there's so many different forms that you can tell your stories in these days between you've got the movie, you've got podcasts, you've got limited series runs, anthology shows, you've got broadcast network so how are you telling your stories and for me i think the question that i always ask myself is why are you telling this story in this particular form and for me i don't think that veronica mars works as well as a movie at least under the constraints that they were under because they were trying to do a lot of fan service in addition to trying to tell the story so the fundamental problem with the story is, is that it, it doesn't feel as developed as it did as previous Veronica Mars mysteries have done. And that's by the, by its very nature. This is an hour and 45 minute movie. It's just not going to be able to do that. So I think a lot of things get lost in the shuffle. They don't work nearly as well, unfortunately. And ultimately I think the mystery would have been fine if we had gotten to see more of it. And if it was more well-developed, I think given the nature of the movie, I think this was probably about the best they could do. Although I will point out how funny it is that Veronica Mars has so often been compared to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who was played by Sarah Michelle Gellar. The main plot line of this movie feels like it is a ripoff of I Know What You Did Last Summer, which also starred Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah, there's definitely some striking similarities there. I didn't have too big of a problem here with the story. It got us to get Kristen Ritter back. It gave Dick Casablanca somewhat of a spotlight. And and more or less, it made sense. I just think that it was so obvious that Cobb was going to be the one who was behind it just because he was new, hadn't been seen again, and having a brand new character be the one behind this doesn't doesn't muddy the waters as much as it would have had a previously existing character been the one to commit this this heinous act so you can so if they were to continue then you still haven't necessarily sullied some of these characters names i mean gia goodman does end up dead but somebody like dick casablancas doesn't get painted with this terrible picture going forward is what i'm trying to say so that just the obvious nature of it took it out a little bit for me but i thought in general the way it was told over time i thought it like you said it was 
in this particular format of how they're telling a story. They did the best they probably could. And the acting was great, too. Yeah, I think that these performers are really invested in what they were doing. And I think you can tell that they all genuinely like these characters and liked returning. Because I think sometimes what happens with some of these reunions is that they either don't care or they're not invested as much. And I think that suffers. But in this case, it was very obvious to me that they were all wanting to do this. Kristen Bell did not have to come back to Veronica Mars. She was very clearly in a position. She was doing a lot of TV shows, a lot of movies, even now. You know, she did the fourth season of Veronica Mars, and she's still an extremely busy person. I mean, Frozen is out, and that's going to be one of the biggest movies of the year. She's got hosting reality shows. The final season that A Good Place is airing. So she doesn't have to do this. And the fact that she did come back, and Jason Doring, probably not as busy, but again, is somebody who has kind of moved on. Enrico Calatani, again, in a similar position. So the fact that they all came back, I think speaks to the fact that they really cared about this story and continuing on with these characters. And the other thing that was really obvious to me in watching the movie again, it's very clear that based on a lot of the seeds that they plant, that Rob Thomas definitely had ideas to do either the books, which he did do, and eventually the, the rebooted TV series, because there are definitely some things that get planted here that the movie has simply no time to address. It is funny you say that because there was a Rolling Stone interview I read with him after this movie. And the takeaway I got from it was a quote from him that just says, if we never saw Veronica again and I never got the chance to tell another story involving her, I'm totally comfortable with where we left her this time. It was much harder leaving her as a pariah the way we did at the end of the show. And so I do agree with you while the movie does leave some loose ends for more stories to be told. I think it does wrap up. The sheriff stuff with Keith and it does wrap up. Well, even I mean, sort of, kind of, because I'm, I'm thinking about this now. They don't ever like specifically address it. And he's in a much nicer home now than he was then. So you could maybe make a connection one way or the other. But even that, you know, you get the sex tape thing taken care of. But that election thing, that doesn't never get specifically mentioned, does it? And they don't they never mention whether Vincent Van Lowe was the sheriff of Neptune. It's it's really bizarre. It is really obvious to me that that is, again, something that Rob Thomas had no interest in addressing either way. And I think that just shows kind of the half-baked nature of that season three finale. And there you go. That that's kind of says it all. The one other side thing that you have here is Weevil is seen at the reunion, and he has basically gone legit. He's married. He has a daughter. He's opened up this garage, and he is completely out of biking. He tells Veronica that the since his daughter's been born, he hasn't been on a bike again. So... You're all very happy as an audience to see that Weevil has this great life, a totally different Weevil than we last saw when we left Neptune. But of course, Jerome, that couldn't let not last. He's driving home that night after the reunion. He's t- taking the babysitter home when he's driving through town and notices that this woman in a van is being harassed by this biker gang. So he gets out to try to give her some assistance. And she's so scared that she shoots him when he approaches her window. And this turns out to be Celeste Kane. There was a photo of him taken on the ground with a gun in his hand, planted presumably by sheriff's offices. Uh, And this is said that she can claim self-defense. And Keith begins working to try to prove Weevil's innocence. And he later has a secret meeting with Deputy Sachs in Sachs's vehicle in like this garage. And Sachs admits that, you know, I, I checked in that gun myself. I know that serial number. I know that the sheriff's office is planning this evidence. 
But then they see some people watching them. They go to leave, and this truck slams into their car, which seriously injures Keith. And there's a second slam that kills Deputy Sachs. And fortunately for Keith, they're nearby where Logan is able to see him and save Keith from the second crash. That could have been fatal to him as well. And then he is hospitalized from his injuries as the movie comes to a close. And this is a story that is definitely going to be carried through into the next two books. So this is something that you want to talk about stories that are opened that you know that they would need to be pursued further. This is definitely one that it's not the main story, but it's, I think, a a very interesting story, even if there might be some minor holes in it. It feels like there is so much conflict with who Weevil is because – and I, and I think this speaks to something greater, that, an issue of representation, because I think Weevil is really the only Hispanic character that is on the show. If you really think about it, he's one of only two characters of color, the other one being Wallace. And Wallace is very much in a supporting role, even, even relative to the other shows. And we see Wallace having some level of success at this point. And Weevil is is able to have some success as well. But the, the problem with only having, you know, the one character of color is that when something happens to them, especially when it's on the negative side, then I think you put a lot of that onto this one character. And the best example that I could think of is, is Game of Thrones. So I'm about to spoil the final season of Game of Thrones for, for people. And there, there, is a, there are very few characters of color on that show as well. And when one of them gets killed, it feels so much more significant because so much is placed onto their shoulders as a character because they are kind of representing everyone. And I think that that has always been one of the problems for Weevil is that he kind of has to carry the load for like an entire race. And I don't think that that's a good thing. I don't think that's a healthy thing. And when you have him kind of do the turn that he does at the end of this movie where he basically is rejoining the gang and going back to his former life. And I will grant you that the books do a very good job of adding some nuance to that. But even in going from, even, even if you're just watching this movie and you don't watch the books, which presumably most people have, have not done, then I think you have a very negative portrayal of Weevil. And it's, it's one of those things that I have never thought has worked about the show. I think the way that they have treated Weevil has, has they kind of done him dirty in a lot of ways because they keep like dangling the carrot, have him getting the, the carrot. And then there's a new carrot and they're just constantly doing this back and forth between him. And I know that Rob Thomas as a storyteller definitely likes his, his kind of bittersweet endings, but it really feels like when you have issues of representation as so many movies and TV shows do that you, that you run into this problem. Yeah, the the treatment of Weevil is very strange because you are happy to see him back in his life and then the movie ends with him riding off in his old biker gang again and you kind of throw your hands up and it's like, listen, I know that there's probably some people who are happy to return to the status quo Veronica Mars and old, but at the same time, like this was this was good character growth. This is something I enjoyed seeing and there was definitely a little bit of deflating I had to see Weevil put back in such a position. I guess there's fewer things, fewer stories to be told with Weevil if he's not in this, but that it, there's a little bit of laziness to that too, I think. And at the end of the day, if, if you are doing this movie and I know that maybe you want to continue moving on with this story, like, do you have to involve Weevil in future Veronica Mars stories? That's the other thing. I mean, there's like, this is something that I, I always discuss with Brian is 
this idea of the false binary. Do you know what a false binary is, Kevin? I know that term, but I'm having trouble putting it into words. So, later. so, so the basic idea of the false binary is that you are creating two choices for yourself, but the idea is that they are they are false choices. That Weevil is either this one thing, he is either this good person, or he's a criminal. And I think, if, from a storytelling perspective, it's really tough to negotiate that because. The idea seems to be that either Weevil is interesting as this kind of shady character, or he is uninteresting and we can't do anything with him if he is, if he's on the right side of the law. And I just, as a storyteller, as a screenwriter, when you get paid millions of dollars, you can, you can do whatever you want. If you, you have to, that's, that's the whole idea of creativity to me. And when you do this to Weevil on, on a season by season, a movie by movie basis, it makes me question what your creativity level really is. Yeah, I agree. And I think in some respects, the books get a little more creative in, in some ways. And I think it's better utilizing past characters than some of this. But we'll get to that in just a second. The movie essentially ends with Logan and, and Veronica giving it the old, not college try again with their relationship. Mac, who at the time was working for... Kane software. She leaves to help out with some day-to-day stuff at Veronica Mars since Keith is recovering. Uh, Wallace, I forgot to mention, is now the lead basketball coach at Neptune High. Weevil has returned to his life as a biker, and uh, Keith is still recovering in the hospital. So, And it looks like Veronica is back in the fold at, at Mars Investigations as we end the movie. So with all that uh, stuff, overall thoughts on the movie? Would you say this is uh, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle? I would say my thumbs are slightly up. I think this was a really enjoyable, watchable movie in some ways. I think it's significantly more watchable than season three. I think I, I liked a lot of the elements. I don't think there was anything actively bad. I know that there are some people that kind of detest the idea of this movie because it is so fan servicey. And yes, there is a lot of fan service, some of which is good, some of which is bad. But I think what I appreciated is the fact that they were able to complete the story, even if there was never another book or another movie or another TV show, there was at least some sense of this story has been wrapped up and Veronica Mars has kind of ended where she started. There's also kind of this, this melancholy feeling of, oh, Veronica's just back in Neptune and back to her old life. And I think there is kind of a, a sadness to that because the, 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 the thinking is that, well, you can't really go home again. And I think with a lot of these these reboots and these TV shows that are coming back, I think there is there there is a sadness to them because a lot of times the characters are basically in the same position as they were when those respective shows and movies ended. And maybe in real life that's that's how it is. See some people just are not able to move on and able to deal with themselves differently, but I think Sometimes entertainment is also meant to be aspirational and just having the characters be in the same position doesn't always work. And that's, that's kind of a more meta feeling about reboots. And I think that's how I feel about this. So while I think it was enjoyable and I think there's a lot of good scenes and I laughed a lot and there were some great cameos and some great guest stars, I, I kind of walked away with this being like, well, I guess Veronica's just back to doing the same thing she was doing 10 years ago. There is some of that, and I and I wonder if they took a gamble on that, assuming that that's what most fans would want. And to play devil's advocate, I do think there is 
something kind of interesting that you had both Weevil and Veronica try to escape and better their lives. Weevil within Neptune, Veronica trying to escape it and them falling back into their old patterns because of X, Y, and Z, but also something kind of interesting that the one person who really truly has made leaps and bounds in their life and come out to the better place is Logan Eccles himself. Somebody who was behind the eight ball more than any of these characters ended up cleaning himself up the most and coming out the most smelling like roses in a better position than he was when we last left him. I can see that. I have to be honest. I think my seeing season four undoubtedly is changing my ability to have this conversation because I think that is undoubtedly going to color. So when we should probably put a pin in this conversation and come back to it next month after we've discussed season four, because I'll be very curious to see what you think that, because I cannot, I cannot put aside the way that I see season four out of this conversation because it definitely changes it a lot. Got it. Okay. So we will do that then. And we mentioned some guest stars. I'll run through them real quick and you can tell me your general thoughts. Already mentioned Jamie Lee Curtis and Jerry Connolly, so I won't chew my food twice. You had mentioned Ira Glass. He is a coworker of Piz in his New York radio station. Eddie Jemison is the potential mayor lawyer for Logan. He was in the Oceans movies and then I Zombie. Gabby Hoffman appears as Bonnie DeVille's superfan. She was in Girls and more lately is in Transparent. I think she even award, won an award for being in Transparent, if I'm if I'm correct. You had three guys hitting on Veronica at the O-Niners Club, which is the bar that her and Logan go to with the superfan. You have Justin Long, known for Accepted and some other things. Kyle Bornheimer, who I he's, – he's more of a character actor. I recognize him from one small bit in The Office and also Party Down. And then the last man being, of course, the funniest inclusion is – Kristen Bell's real-life husband, Dak Shepard, who she rejects pretty harshly in this movie. Always fun to see those tongue-in-cheek things. You failed to mention that Justin Long was also the star of the hit movie Tusk. I never saw Tusk, so that's why. But he, <laughs> but he, but he was good in Zack and Miri make a porno. At least his character was. Right. Uh, yeah, you need to see Tusk at some point in your life, Kevin. You, you owe that to yourself. Body horror stuff really is like my Achilles heel. I really do not care for it. That's a fair point. Uh, I really like Eddie Jennison. He is a great that guy. I love him in the Oceans movies. I think he is he's – he's a really good Swiss Army knife. I think he can play a wide variety of characters. And uh, I, he was probably one of the more underrated people as far as cameos go i didn't realize that gabby hoffman was so much closer in age to the other characters in the movie than she was because the first thing that i remember seeing gabby hoffman is is the 1989 movie field of dreams where she plays the daughter so basically it's it's tough for me to register how old she is because that kind of skews things when they're child actors but yeah she is very close in age to everyone on the show I think maybe the strangest cameo of all is what we haven't mentioned yet. And that is James Franco playing himself. Like it's strange in the scene of itself. They, they use him as another actor who got one of these iPads who that had a spy software on it, but just to have him as himself. I mean, I guess maybe this is sort of in the, the day and age where James Franco was more of a meme now than he, then than he is sort of now, but yeah, th- it felt like a very strange scene that it didn't really fit the rest of the movie. And in some ways it is forgettable when the movie's over especially with what we learn in the books i think that um the way that james franco what we know about him now relative to this point and what they mentioned in the books uh it's a little creepy yes very much so 
Uh, his assistant is played by Eden Scherf. She was in an episode of Party Down, but is probably best known for her role in the TV show The Middle. And I want to give one last quick guest star shout out to Dave Allen, the neighbor who heard G and Cobb having sex on the radio. He was Dr. Rosso, the guidance counselor in Freaks and Geeks, and was also in an episode of Party Down. Love that guy. Yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. I, I definitely remember him from everything you mentioned. I know he's been in a couple of other projects that were done by Jed Apatow. I mean, he's great. Tons, so many great cameos. And yeah, I mean, Rob Thomas just was really able to empty the playbook, so to speak. And then we have these two Veronica Mars novels that came out. Now, when it comes to novels and, and TV shows like this, there's two things I need before I will read them. One, that they are written by the showrunner themselves, or at least writers of the show, and they need to be canonical. And both of these books are. They're both written by Rob Thomas and a co-author, and they are both canonical, t- le- taking us from where the movie left off. So I'll talk about kind of, I think, what are the bigger plot points that, are, uh, that affect our characters uh, from the books, and then go into some of the stories a little bit. Uh, We start the first book, The Thousand Dollar Tan Line. Keith is still in the hospital undergoing some mental exercises to check his recall memory and his general reflexes. Veronica more or less has taken over day-to-day operations of Mars investigations, and Mac is their secretary slash hacker. At this point, Logan is at sea in the Middle East. He and Veronica have occasional Skype dates and they swap emails, but the long-distance relationship is definitely not ideal and can leave Veronica cold sometimes. Wallace is still around, same as ever. Weevil and Dick both appear. They're the same as they were in the movie. And in the law enforcement world, Dan Lamb is still the sheriff, still as concerned with his self-image as ever. And Cliff McCormick is still helping the ne'er-do-wells of Neptune as a public defender. So that's sort of the the stuff that carries over from the movie into the book. But they do, I think, a pretty good job at least covering their bases of showing us where everybody is since the movie happened in this first book. Yeah, and they definitely, whereas the movie, I think, gets Logan and Veronica back together, I think the book, this first book punts on their relationship. For all intents and purposes, yes, Veronica feels cold, but ultimately they punt on doing any sort of development. It's the next book where we get a lot more development of their kind of relationship. Right, but it's still, I guess, tying into the, yep, they're, they're still together. And there's nothing really that's jeopardizing it other than just frustration over being so far apart. Yep. So the main story, there's two girls that go missing. Both of them were last seen at separate parties at the same house. Mac learns that this house was inherited by two young men linked to the cartel. And the title of the book comes from a contest held at these parties where they judge female volunteers have the best tan lines. Yuck. Uh, Petra Landros, who is the current owner of the Neptune Grand, Uh, She inherited it from her deceased husband, hires Mars Investigations to find the first girl, and hopes that her reappearance will no longer harm travel business in Neptune. Also, yuck. Uh, The first missing girl was helped to escape the party by a friend of the two brothers, hoping to get lucky and bringing her by request to Bakersfield, California. As it turns out, Bakersfield was the halfway point between Hearst College, where her jealous on-again, off-again boyfriend lived. And a scuffle happened between them at the hotel they checked into where she was accidentally killed due to blunt trauma to the back of her head. And grossly, Veronica finds her body dead at the hotel. I thought the boyfriend went to Stanford. Okay, maybe he did go to Stanford. I thought it was Hearst for a second. But yeah, Yeah, Bakersfield is in the middle between Stanford and Neptune. You're right. Mea culpa on that. And I think they even mentioned that since Veronica was a Stanford student, she had some idea of the layout of the campus. The second girl is the more important one here, as she is the stepdaughter of Veronica's mother, Leanne Mars, who at this point is seven years sober and remarried to another recovered alcoholic named Tanner. 
it's his daughter, Aurora, that is missing. And he and Leanne together have a six-year-old named Hunter, who is Veronica's half-brother. In the end, Aurora going missing was a plan between Tanner and an old friend he used to grift with. And uh, they try to get some of that sweet sympathy cash they saw roll in from the first girl to help them. Speaking of Kickstarters. And Aurora tries to double-cross her father and his friend by trying to keep all of the money for themselves. She gets caught by Veronica. And thankfully, Keith comes to Aurora and boyfriend's apartment just as they were contemplating killing her. The book concludes with Veronica accepting Hunter, her her, uh, half-brother who's six years old, as part of her family. And eternally reconciling her poor feelings against her mother. And Rick Keith is uh, returning to the office of Mars Investigations at least part-time. So obviously bringing back Leanne Mars to the fold, I think is the biggest part of this book. I think it's an interesting choice, but uh, what did you think of her and Veronica's relationship in this movie and how it evolved by the end? Well, I think one of the big questions that I always had is why did we never see Veronica's mom again after basically season one? I mean, we saw her a little bit in season two, but really don't get a chance to ever explore that relationship. So I'm glad that we did get to explore it this time. I just think it's unfortunate that once again, we are bringing a character back into the fold and having horrendous things happen to them. This is one of those properties where if you are a character, you do not want to come back or you may either end up dead in a really bad position or in the hospital. Something bad is going to happen to you if you return to this world, apparently. Rob Thomas, as a, as a storyteller, I'm just so fascinated by the way he tells stories. And especially it's because, you know, I've done this deep dive into Veronica Mars over the last few months and rewatched the first three seasons after watching season four. You know, I've seen uh, some of I, a lot of iZombie and just him as a storyteller. I think he is a very mixed bag because it, it is seemingly like he wants to exist in a world like network television but the stories and the tones don't really fit in with that. The tone that he has very much is more in line with something that you would see on streaming or cable. And in the next book, I think that is actually very well represented by the, uh, a show that is on the DVR of one Keith Mars and Veronica Mars. <laughs> yes. Uh, which we'll get into. But just as a storyteller, Rob Thomas seems to have a very, almost a nihilistic way of telling stories, I guess. Which, hey, if you want to talk comparisons to Buffy, there is some of that in there, too. No, no one ever ends up happy in the Whedon verse is a, is a phrase I tend to live by. There is, but I mean, I think it's a little bit different. And I'm, I'm having a hard time just classifying why it's different, because I, I've seen so much more of Veronica Mars than I have of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But the, I, I would say that there is very similar DNA between those between those two properties and the way that they tell stories. I mean, I think even some of the same creepiness exists between Rob Thomas and Joss Whedon as well. That's yeah, that's fair. I do like how the relationship was handled. It wasn't a totally quick fix bandaid for either of them. They were cordial, so it wasn't all just screaming matches and whatnot. But there was definitely a, a, a sense of realness as to between them. And they end on good terms, but not great terms. And I think that is also a realistic way for them to go out. And I, and I think if you didn't have this half-brother in her life, there may have been an easier way to have a clean-cut split from them, just kind of a let's agree to live apart. But I think Veronica does want to have her half-brother in her life. I think him being the bridge between them to try to slowly and hopefully build their relationship into something better 
is is a a nice positive way to end the book and realistically you know maybe they just couldn't get the actress who plays her mom to come back in those ensuing seasons but i was glad they brought her back and i thought that that added a nice element to this book that made it it uh, if you're a Veronica's man anyway somewhat of a must read and the other thing that i really liked about again i talked about how you're telling stories i don't think veronica mars really can work as a movie. I think it works much better as a book because there have been a bajillion detective noir books that have been written over the years. So I just think the style lends itself so much more to the novel format. And I think what you get to see is you get to see so much, a lot of internalization. I think what I would have almost liked is if Veronica had been narrating the book herself. I think that would have been an interesting choice. I think it would have actually been a little bit more challenging since there are parts of the book that do not take place where Veronica is. So I think the POV would have been difficult, but I would have liked to have seen the book written from Veronica's perspective or a book written from Veronica's perspective. Maybe that's something that can happen at this point. I'll probably explain more about that next month, but I would love to see them kind of have a first person, but I think you still get with a novel, you're always going to get a lot more internalization you can describe what characters are thinking as opposed to having them verbalize everything out like you have to do on a movie or TV show. So what you get, therefore, is you get to see how and why Veronica is so good at what she does and her thought process as she is doing different things. And that is something that I very much appreciated because you kind of get it when you're watching the movie or TV show. But in this case, you really get to understand how Veronica operates as a private investigator in this book. Yeah, her processes and all that and the connections, and it's it's pretty exciting to follow. Uh, so we'll go into the second book, Mr. Kiss and Tell. This came out in early 2015. Now, at this point, Logan is home from active duty. He, Veronica has her own place. They're living together, enjoying life. But there's all these like little reminders that their time together is oh so fleeting. Like, for example, there's one morning where she catches Logan learning a foreign language. And she begins to worry that maybe he has some plans, some future plans that would keep them apart for good that she's not clued in on. And then one day they're enjoying a barbecue at Keith's house when Logan learns one of his comrades passed during a plane accident. And he is called back onto duty early, which cuts their time at home a little bit short. And maybe my favorite chapter in the whole book is they're enjoying breakfast on the beach before she has to take him to the airport. And Logan relates to Veronica how enlisting saved his life and gave him purpose, which eased some of the tension she had about Logan choosing his job over her, which of course is something that she does often herself. We even saw in the movie and they both realized this is something they need to reconcile if they want to stay together. So I think in that respect, it's interesting that they have these lives where they're drawn to these professions that they choose and they know that it, it is to the detriment of their personal lives and their relationships. But for whatever reason, they can't seem to break away Logan's being that this is what essentially cleaned up his life and mentioning he was even on the verge of having very casual thoughts of suicide and how this li literally saved his life and putting into that picture didn't make it feel better for Veronica. And the way this was written and the way Logan stated it was I both thought very real to Logan himself, but to me was one of the the best things I think about this book was Logan explaining why he enlisted and what that meant to him. And it sort of gives you a peek into his life between season three and the movie itself too, which I thought was very valuable. Yeah. I think that that is something that we desperately needed because he basically is one character at the end of season three and in the movie, he is just almost a completely different character. So I definitely appreciated that as well. I really liked the first book more 
Mr. Kiss and Tell is much more plot heavy. There's a ton of exposition. There's a ton of plot that is going on. You almost have three or four different stories going on in the book. And I think it at times can be difficult to follow. So if you are more into plot, Mr. Kiss and Tell is probably going to be your jam. If you are vested in the Veronica Logan relationship, you definitely want to read Mr. Kiss and Tell and you can almost skip the first book for that reason. For me personally, I am not a, I am not a shipper of their relationship. So their stuff in this book, well, I, I appreciated what they did with the Logan character. I've just never, never really been invested in them as a couple. I still think there's a lot of toxicity there. I think they even discuss some of it and how these two people are just too similar. And that's why it, it almost could never work between these two. And I still came away with that impression. And the fact that Veronica is even considering Leo, which is something that comes up in toward the end of the book, which is, it's so weird how this just all of a sudden, just it seemingly comes out of nowhere, this whole Leo-Veronica flirtation. And I know that they dated in the past, but if you had told me this book was coming out and then the TV show was coming out like a month after, I could be like, well, they're clearly setting something up for season four. I hated Leo's involvement of this. It felt very forced. Like, I guess we need to have a male character that is going to maybe have Veronica think twice. And since Teddy Dunn is no longer in it, I already forgot his character name in the show for some reason. Duncan Kane. Oh, yes. Duncan Kane's in Australia. Piz and her broke up and he's in New York. The only other male character she's dated that the audience would know and care about is Leo. So I guess we have to throw him in here. But that was part of the book I really did not like. It was fine that they worked together and solved the case together. But I thought the maybe romantic tension stuff was really unnecessary and just there to satisfy a need that nobody wanted. I don't know. For me, Rob Thomas does not write rape cases very well. And this was another case of where somebody was accusing someone of rape when it didn't actually happen. This is, this, this is, this is multiple times that he's done it. I was going to say the second time. He's done this multiple times. It's really gross. And I, I would almost prefer that he just not write about it anymore in any form of Veronica Mars. I agree. Yeah, that was the thing. When I read it, I was like, really? Another rape case? And I just, it's different from the one we experienced in season three. But it wasn't like I was dying for for his new take on on rape in this book either. So, yeah, that, that definitely made me roll my eyes when I realized that's what we were in for. And sex workers as well, and some shaming of them that happens. Of course, of course. But one of the more important things is Weevil is acquitted of all charges against Celeste Kane. There's a big celebration, and Keith and Cliff then convince Weevil to file a lawsuit against the sheriff's office for planning the evidence on him. Keith is, as we know from talking to... Uh, Deputy Sachs in the movie and all this has been putting together evidence of several occasions of the sheriff's office doing this. And he feels compelled to assist Weevil and get him a nice chunk of change. And uh, and really what happened is this lawsuit with Celeste Kane. Th- this also fills a little bit of gaps and there just wasn't enough time to explore in the movie. But because of this lawsuits against Weevil, that's what lost him his garage business because there weren't rich people from Neptune willing to give him his business anymore. This was kind of made him jaded and results in returning to his biker lifestyle, which may ultimately cost him his wife and kid, too. There's been problems with him and his wife at this time. And winning the lawsuit is essentially his way to get his life back. But then one night, Veronica and Keith learn via the news that Weevil instead settled with the department and dropped his case. This makes things tense with him and Veronica. She talks to him, but really deep down, she understands because for Weevil, it wasn't all about 
getting justice from the from the sheriff's department, but it was about trying to get a nice chunk of change to get his life back on track and maybe not lose his daughter and his wife. There's some realism to this because it would have been a little annoying if everything in the book just turned out great. It doesn't necessarily make you think the best of Weevil, but I can at least understand where he's coming from, and I do think it is more interesting for this to be the way it goes than it does for it to have all turned out great. And also, I think you needed this lawsuit to be done with before the climax of the book with the sheriff's election coming up as well. That was my thoughts on it anyway. Again, the execution of Weevil's character has not always been the best, but I think they just about did what they could. I think they had to... Rob Thomas kind of wrote himself into a corner, and this was clearly the way that he had to write himself out, and I think that that is... That's all understandable. I think that works for the most part, and I really do like the idea of getting Lamb out of there. (laughs) I understand that he is a great foil, but I think having some payoff, especially if there was never going to be another movie or TV show. I think that was really great. But what I was wondering about the Marsha Langdon, it was never clear to me what they were doing with her character because it very much seems like Keith does not trust her for some reason, but that's not something that he ever articulates to anyone else. And the implication that I was wondering about was, was it one of those things where he thought that she was either in on it or she was just snitching and she was still involved or like what was up with that situation because it was never clear to me how how he felt about Marsha Langdon so I never got the sense that he didn't trust her but I the what they explain about Marsha Langdon is that she comes back to town she wins the sheriff election to Marsha Langdon Keith knew her from her childhood she ended up as like a teenager being ostracized from her family because she found cocaine in her brother's room who was like the high school football star but he got caught up with some bad people and she reported him to the police and this obviously caused a rift in her family but then she went on to have a 30-year tenure in the army and she retired she returns to neptune after seeing the news of the corruption and is trying to here to, to help clean up her hometown what made you think that keith didn't necessarily trust her there was definitely something where i think that they mentioned that there was like a wistfulness to him feeling nostalgic all of a sudden Maybe something about his injury bringing that to light, but I never got a sense of distrust here. So what made you feel that? I don't know, because Keith tends to distrust everyone. So I think just the way that it was written, that's the impression that I was getting. And the fact that he did not, he seemed so hesitant to really discuss her with Veronica. I mean, that's, again, this is not something that is actually in the text, but it's just something that I was wondering about and wanted to get kind of your position on. But I, I tend to agree. And it seems like I was just reading too much into it as far as this plot line goes, because there's no longer a lamb in charge. No longer a lamb in charge. And it's interesting to me that they introduced a new character and had them become the sheriff. Because again, this was in January 2015 when this book was written. It's not as if they knew a Veronica Mars season four was coming where this character could be fleshed out. We learn more about her. So they at least introduced a new character and took a risk in this way. And I thought... Think if there's any instance where that's the case. I don't know if there's anybody else in this town I would think I would feel great about becoming sheriff again, unless it was Keith, I suppose. No, and at this point, with his health being what it is, it, it, it definitely wasn't going to happen. But uh, we do have another blonde being traumatized, Kevin. That's an important <sighs> part of this. Yes, we do. So that's the main crux we talked about. There's this girl found more or less an abandoned part of Neptune, and it turns out to be Grace Manning. And if that name rings a bell... This was Meg Manning's younger sister that Veronica and Duncan found out was being abused by their father in season two. She is now a theater student in college, living on her own, completely free from her parents. 
And she purposely wrongly accused one of the hotel staff. Uh, also not great because it turns out to be an illegal immigrant. They don't really delve too deeply into that, but there's there's some things you can de- dive into that just have bad implications. I, I, I want to interrupt you and just say that they mentioned ICE in this book, and I know that people have only begun to realize that ICE is a thing since the election of the current administration, but ICE was around during the previous administration, and there were a hell of a lot of deportations, and I think a lot of people of a certain political persuasion did not discuss it because of who was in office, but ICE has been around for a long time, and it's not great. Yeah, we'll we'll leave it at that for now. That's this is not the right podcast to get into that discussion. No, but I I I, I think when you mention what because if people go and read this book now, they're going to see ICE, and I think it is worth mentioning, but not worth discussing extensively. Yeah, I would agree with that. So some investigating from both Mac and Veronica lead them to find a, one of the possible suspects is Charles Sinclair, which is Madison Sinclair's father. But we're reminded that this is also Mac's birth father. And so she gets a little more invested in the case, too. And we learn she's kind of been keeping tabs on her family as well, which is interesting that they brought this back after such a long time of not really mentioning Mac being the Sinclair family's baby it turns out that the dna doesn't match on grace so he's cleared but sort of an an interesting choice that doesn't get explored too too much from mac in this book i thought that was a a strange thing to bring up as her still being semi-invested in this family after it being lord knows how many years since she made this discovery and i guess it's hard to say never being in that position that it's something that you probably never totally shake free of but it it was just a peculiar choice i thought so veronica has this very hard moral code it seems like with so many people and we see this on a consistent basis but mac plays in the moral gray areas and it seems like veronica is more than okay to play in those moral gray areas when it comes to mac and i think that that is also something that is it would would be worth exploring is like what exactly is veronica's belief system and how is that evolving and changing as she grows up into being more of an adult and even now at this point getting into middle age. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. I think Veronica is okay to turn a blind eye to some of Mac's practices as long as she isn't made fully aware of it. And if it's in the best interest of their case. Uh, but this, I think because it's so personal, I think it kind of c- catches her off guard. Uh, but later they investigate Mitch Bellamy, who's a football coach at a local He's a college. basketball coach. Oh, I'm sorry. He is a basketball coach, but it just so happens. The local college has the initials PSU. Hmm. Very interesting. Are you implying that this is meant to critique another college with those same letters? I think it's meant to at least have a resonation from the people who are reading this book. Yes. His DNA evidence does, in fact, match what was found on Grace. When he's confronted by the police, he revealed he hired her as a prostitute and was too embarrassed to admit it, but says she was fine when he left his room. And so, yes, Grace Manning herself is a prostitute, which leads some of the problems Jerome had discussed. Veronica finds what it, what is essentially like the Yelp of prostitutes, uh, <laughs> where he's posting under the pseudonym of Mr. Kiss and Tell. So there's your title of the book, leaving nasty reviews on several girls, which include Grace. So a few phone calls and some detective work confirm Mitch not only ditched Grace Manning, but had been a repeat offender. Along the way, she meets this large, sympathetic bodyguard in the line of business who basically beats a confession out of Mr. Bellamy. When she realizes the law would probably not be on her side if they had done something about it since prostitutes are involved. And that's pretty much how the story ends. It's 
fine, but not a story that I needed to to hear again. But yeah, this this jumps all over the place. This case, but I really just kind of boiled it down to its digestible bits. Yes, and this again, this book is so plot heavy, and there's it, in a way it feels a lot more straightforward with what ones what ends up happening because they eventually identify Mitch Bellamy and. They just really dig in, and it's not one of those things where I, I was half expecting, oh, it's not him, it's someone else, but it is in fact him. He is in fact a monster, and he gets the shit kicked out of him at the end of the book, which I guess on a visceral level is satisfying, but it's definitely not the most legal thing that happens. No, but I guess if the law is not going to take anything in the hands, this is the best you can do to get a confession out of the guy. Rob Thomas's politics are really interesting. We also discover that Keith Mars and Veronica Mars are fans of the hit television show True Detective. And I, I want an in-character podcast hosted by Keith and Veronica Mars where they discuss not the first season, but the second season of True Detective. I have a feeling that's something that Kristen and Rico would definitely do. I, I desperately want to see that. I, it's de- desperately because... They, they, have, they, they probably have some notes. They probably have some critiques on the way that the true detectives operate. Well, my last note for this book in and of itself is obviously the most important thing that comes of it. And that's that Veronica and Logan adopt a puppy. This she- is really important because we, we find out that backup has unfortunately passed, as dogs do. But we get Pony. We get Pony. And, and I love the name Pony because... This is a callback to the TV show where years and years there was jokes about Keith getting her a pony for her birthday or Christmas. And so she finally gets her pony in the form of the dog. The name sticks. And it's always a fun time when Pony comes around in one of the scenes, especially when a uh, poor pony is very sad to see Logan on one of their Skype dates and him not to actually be in the room. Who doesn't love a dog? Really? Come on. It- Seriously. So with all that said, those are the two books. In general, I enjoyed reading both of them. They were they were pretty fast, easy reads. I'd say the plot of the first book is better than the second. But in terms of development of characters, the second book is better than the first, although the Leanne Mars stuff in the first book is good. But from your perspective, Jerome, somebody who has watched season four, how crucial is it to read these two books to bridge the gap between the movie and the show? I think if you are the type of person who would like to understand the, the, the fourth season, I think it would be helpful to read Mr. Kiss and Tell. I don't think that the first book really plays any role whatsoever. The thousand dollar tan line. I don't think, I mean, there's a little bit of the cartel stuff that comes back, which I think is dumb. I don't, I, I hate how every, TV show or property seems to, to seems to go to the cartel storyline. There's a little bit of that in season four. That's not too much of a spoiler, but there is some stuff from the second book that will play a role in season four. And I'm not going to say what it is, but people who watch season four can probably surmise what I'm saying. And people who don't can just be as clueless as they want to be like you, Kevin. That's right. Leave me as clueless as I can before we watch it. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a thing. Well, the final thing to talk about before we wrap up this episode is that there was this short show called Play It Again, Dick. It was on CW Seed, which I guess is like an internet only CW network outlet thing from September to November 2014, where it's essentially Ryan Hansen pitching to CW, a spinoff of Veronica Mars centered on Dick Casablancas as a private eye. 
And most of the episodes, these mini episodes, they're between, you know, nine to 11 minutes each is Ryan Hansen trying to recruit ex cast members to be involved with very mixed results. The funniest ones being Francis Capra, who wants to be shown as a serious thespian, only agreeing to do the show if he can be given something real he can seek his teeth into. Percy Daggs wanting his character to be more of a badass. And then you even get iZombie actors Rose MacGyver and Robert Buckley guest starring in some of these. So iZombie's already pretty much under the way of being shot, so they're thrown in here as a bonus. And we see two actors in this that aren't in the movie or the books. You get Clarence Weeman returning disguising himself as an Asian chef in the hotel kitchen to aid with some murders that uh, Celeste Kane wants to do. And then you get the ghost of Cassidy appearing to speak to Dick to help him with some of his cases. And the best part of this is that Dick it keeps promising Cassidy to find his killer and Cassidy rolling his eyes telling him, I've told you, I jumped. You don't need to find my killer. Needless to say, he uh, Dick Casablanca is not the best PI. Uh, and oh, and the other great thing that they do is they couldn't get Teddy Dunn to come back as Duncan Kane. So who do you think would be one of the worst choices to take over as Ryan Dunn here? Well, that would be Ryan Devlin, who and if that name does not ring a bell, that is the actor who played Mercer in season three. That is who uh, Ryan Hansen hires to take over as Duncan Kane. Sure, it's confusing, but uh, Ryan Devlin's just very happy to make there's a, it. It seems like there's a lot of meta commentary, especially with what Francis Capra and Wallace wanted on Percy Diggs, what they want to do. That feels very meta. Yeah, it's 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 funny. It's totally unnecessary to watch. But if you got, you know, five bucks, seven bucks in your coffers and you want to buy them on Amazon Prime, it's it might be worth your while. I think it's on iTunes, too. And it ends up that uh, the CW passes on the show. And they say the reason they're passing is that their fans are accustomed to a certain level of competence from a television show. Uh, but the show gets picked up in Japan. So uh, things always come out on top for Dick, I suppose. Always in every way. And that's it. That's everything I have to cover for that. That bridges the gap between seasons three and uh, seasons four of Veronica Mars. I do find it really interesting and somewhat of a weird choice that the movie is not available on Hulu to watch if people are watching along. I'm sure that is a streaming rights issue. Warner Brothers is in charge of the Rob Veronica Mars property. I'm sure that Veronica Mars is going to be available. The movie is on HBO Max. I am. We are still waiting. We are still waiting for any updates on season five. If there is going to be season five, where it's going to be streaming, how this is all going to work, mm-hmm. because we are in a brave new world. And the only Kristen Bell news that has come out recently is that she is going to be the narrator for Gossip Girl once again. So she will be involved in HBO Max in some way. So there you go. So yeah, as a, so I guess as of this, Jerome, this is our penultimate episode. We'll be back next month, of course, to talk season four, but Mars Investigated might be a completed project already. It may very well be a completed project. I have a feeling there's going to be a season five, and I have a feeling that there is going to be an announcement at some point. I, it's like, I'm surprised that, it has not occurred at this point. I really thought that they were going to either renew it or cancel it once again, or Kristen Bell is going to say, I'm not doing it anymore. But here we are still waiting for it. And next month is going to probably be our longest episode. I have a feeling it's going to be a long one. There's going to be a lot to discuss. Well, we're already going pretty long here, so we appreciate everybody for listening. Any final thoughts on the movie or the books before we uh, put a pin in this and we go to season four. Well, I'm going to publicly say this while this is being recorded, Kevin, as soon as you get done with season four, I'm ordering you 
to text me your immediate reaction because I'm going to read it on the air next month. Got it. Okay, I will. I will do that. So. Get my immediate reaction, and we'll do a deep dive into Season 4 of Veronica Mars. But in the meantime, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And we will see you next month with the possibly ultimate episode of Mars Investigated. You came to me.